0: We open our Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians ten fourteen through 22 to be trained in the Word of the Lord right here. So if you will do that, go ahead and open your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 22. If you're taking notes, I encourage you to do that. You can see there's a little space for you to do that on the back of your bulletin. You'll go ahead and follow as I read, beginning in verse 14 of chapter 10. So then, my dear brothers, flee from idolatry. I'm speaking as to sensible people. Judge for, judge for yourselves what I'm saying. The cup of blessing that we bless, is, not, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread... We who are many are one body, since all of us share the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? What am I saying then? That food sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But I do say that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want any of you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? So this section of Scripture zeros in on the sin of idolatry. Idolatry was mentioned even last week, but here it zeroes in on idolatry. Don't use your freedom to cultivate for yourself an idol. That's one of the points that we're going to take away this morning. Don't use your freedom to cultivate for yourself an idol. Our freedom, as we have seen even last week, does not mean we are free to do as we choose. Right? Right? Understanding and practicing this principle serves as a guide to the church, or serves as a guide to our healthy functioning within the church. And so we read, beginning there in verse 14, Paul says to the church in Corinth, So then, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. What is idolatry? We could say, simply put, to worship something or someone other than the true God. That is to worship something or someone other than the true God. Flee, it's saying here, from participating in the worship of false gods. And he offers this, giving the church the benefit of the doubt that they are sensible enough to hear it, saying, verse 15, I am speaking as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I am saying know in the context what we've been rehearsing here in uh, the church in Corinth and what's going on in that church, it is something that he says they're wise, right? And I think it's a little bit of a play on words because certainly they believe that they are in fact wise, but they're having lots of unwise and foolish problems. And so he says, hey, you're sensible, you're wise, you at least think you're sensible and wise, so let's go with that wisdom that you're claiming to have, I think is what he's saying. Let me grant you that you're sensible. And so, since I've granted you that you're sensible, why don't you, church, see the sensibility of what I'm saying? If you are wise in the Lord, you won't be able to reject this guidance, right? That's what he's getting at. And that is true, isn't it? If we are wise in the Lord, we can't reject the guidance of God's word. We won't. Sensible, sensible people, for starters, know that idols are worthless. I suspect that I don't have to convince any of the Christians in the room this morning of that point. Sensible people know idols are worthless. They can't speak, see, hear, smell, walk, talk. And if you're sensible, you will run from idols. You will do what the text says, flee. The unwise, foolish, foolish. Take the glory of the true God and exchange it for idols, though, right? We understand that. We were learning that from Romans 1, 21 and 23, that the foolish thing to do is to take the glory of the true God and exchange that glory for idols. What makes you and I sensible, right? What makes it so we don't do that, right? It's a good question to ask. What makes us sensible? Faith in Jesus and his gospel, and of course, then a willingness to hear from his word, right? That's what makes us sensible. It is the gospel that helps us see just how foolish the wisdom of the world is. Otherwise, right, if we're not in the scriptures and we're not fixed, fixing our hearts on the gospel, truthfully, even the Christian will get sucked in and think that, the, that there is wisdom in the foolishness of the world. We'll call it wise, Now, we've already dealt with that in the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians, but we need to have faith in Jesus and his gospel to be sensible. It is the gospel that enables us to have sense enough to see just how inconsistent and dangerous idolatry is. See, we won't see its inconsistency. We won't see its danger. And then we can meditate on that for just a moment. If it's so obviously wrong right idolatry if it's so obviously inconsistent and dangerous then why is it so attractive to us to use the freedoms that we have in Christ to cultivate idols I think this question helps us define idolatry even further why is it attractive to set our hearts on something other than God because it meets an immediate desire That we don't want to wait on God for. That's maybe one reason, right? Why is it so attractive, this idolatry? Well, because it meets in us an immediate desire that we don't want to wait on God for. Or because it satisfies, so why do we run after some idol? Okay? Because it satisfies an appetite that we don't think. Maybe we wouldn't say it out loud, especially as a Christian, but it satisfies an appetite that we don't think God can satisfy. Or it simply pleases our flesh, and we don't want to deny that pleasure. We don't want to deny ourselves that pleasure, right? And so we feed on that pleasure, and we cultivate for ourselves an idol. We set our heart on it, and we set it over and above our God. There is an area of need, of desire, we might be thinking. There's an area of emptiness in my life. There's an area of dissatisfaction. And this little idol here that I'm cultivating in my heart will kind of fill up what is lacking in my life. He'll make the sunshine a little bit brighter for a little bit longer. Right? This little idol that I'm cultivating in my life, he'll make the rain fall where it hasn't fallen. He'll bring fertility where... Things have been barren in my life. You see, a sun god, a rain god, a fertility god, all take different forms in each of us. Right? We don't carve them out of stone or wood. That's not what we're talking about. But they get etched into our hearts. We take our eyes off Christ and allow ourselves to become entangled in sin. We raised this question this morning. It be important for you to raise it there in your own heart and mind as you're sitting and listening to try to receive from the Lord, I pray. We're all here to do that, right? To receive from His Word this morning. Is there right now anyone in here who has that sense of, man, there is, there is a person or something in your life that you believe you must bring into your life in order to make it brighter and not as barren? Is there a change that you're demanding in your life? And until you get that change, right, you won't be able to rejoice again in your salvation. You see, if that is the case, you probably were not rejoicing in your salvation to begin with, but instead a better circumstance. We cultivate love for idols when, we, when, when our trust or our loyalty to God decreases. Did you hear that? We cultivate love for idols when our trust or our loyalty loyalty to God decreases, and we don't immediately repent, but instead we begin trusting in something else. And the word of God is clear, flee. That's what he says, verse 14, flee. And first John Five, verse 21, we are told guard ourselves from idols. So we see the word quickly just as we do a summary approach to it. It says flee and guard. Both of these activities, church, require us to be alert. And the reason we flee and guard is because, as this text says this morning and as we press forward here, you cannot be participants in Christ and use your freedom to cultivate love for idols. See, our participation with Christ keeps us from any neutral relationship with idolatry. There is no, we could say it like this, this may be a a helpful way to take away from here and maybe meditate on this point as you consider this passage, but there is no neutrality in idolatry. And to establish this point clearly, verse 16 says, you can follow as I read, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it? not a sharing in the blood of Christ that the bread that we break is it not a sharing in the body of Christ the cup of blessing this is the third cup of the Passover that Jesus took and it was known when he's sharing this meal with his disciples it is known as the cup of thanksgiving and Jesus there in that upper room redefined and reinterpreted right and it was re- redefined and reinterpreted to, say, to point to the shedding of his blood. He was going to be the fulfillment of the Passover. It's here at this upper room that he established a new meal. Not a Passover meal, but a gospel meal. It's important to point out that the phrase cup of blessing is described that way because of what it points to. All right? There's not a blessing attached to the cup Meaning, it's not, drink this, and regardless of what is going on in your mind or your heart, you'll be infused with some sort of blessing. Right? But it is describing a prayer of thanksgiving said over the cup. It's saying, man, it it requires, when we're at the table, to be enriched here at the table as we just took from the table this morning. Already. Right? It requires our mind. It requires uh, uh, us to meditate on what the sign points to, our faith in Christ. And so in this idea of this cup of blessing, it's a prayer we're saying, right, before the meal. We thank and we bless and we praise the Lord for the cup that we just held in our hand. We've praised the Lord for what it represents, for what it points to, for what he has done, for what he has given, right? He gave us this drink. He allowed us to be participants. And there would be nothing more, right? There'd be nothing more in our lives. If we properly understand, even as we just took from this meal this morning, there's nothing more in our lives that could be more astonishing, you know, for us to be more astonished by or more thankful for, right? There's nothing. So if you took this morning, that is true, right? As you held that cup in your hand, right, Man, wow, were you astonished by what you just ate and drank this morning? You're participants with Christ. I got to tell you, that's the second time. Which you're like, what? It's only the second time? I've actually got to pass out the Lord's Supper. And I, I, it was hard. I barely made it. I just, I could have broke down in tears just passing out the meal and thinking about these things. And look at you grab hold of it. This is your hope. And what it testifies about your commitment. You know cuz I know, right? As a pastor, I happen to know some of you a little better, right? And and some of you know me. Right? And here we are. Like the ground is level there at the cross, isn't it? And here we are. We're getting to take And I know and you know that it's not because of anything we brought to the table. It's not because of anything we earned. And we got to take. Man, there's nothing for us to be more astonished by or thankful for. You consider Jesus there sitting at the table with his disciples, telling his disciples, as we have done here today, this cup points to the blood that dripped from his body. This cup of blessing, right, points to that. Because it tells us, that we share in the benefits of Christ's death as we look to him by faith, the blood that dripped from him dripped on us so that our sins could be covered, to provide us with forgiveness, undeserved. Verse 17, follow as I read. Because there is one bread, he goes on, we who are many are one body since all of us share the one bread. And he said, right there, that the bread we break when we are sitting together at this table represents his body that was broken for us. It's a very important point of the symbolism here of the sign is that we are all sharing from one loaf. What is that one loaf? That one loaf is Jesus. Okay? Think of it. Man, we're all sharing. That's what's so powerful is you're just watching everybody take from the one loaf Saying they're with Jesus, I'm with Jesus, right? By grabbing hold of this loaf, tearing off a piece, right? We're going to get back to that someday where we actually pass it and you tear it and break it. Some people, that scares them because of germs, right? Well, we'll have to get over that. But that's what's happening. That's the picture, you're tearing off a piece, and we each have a piece of that same loaf, and we are confessing that Jesus willingly gave his body to death so that we could have life and be partakers with him. Jesus breaking the bread tells us that through his death, what? What? He gave us life. That's what the bread tells us. He gave us life, bound together by unearned, undeserved body of Christ. In his death, he shares. He shares with us life. We had all these many pieces holding in our hands. It makes us one loaf, right? We're all grabbing from the same loaf, united participants in Jesus. Just meditate on that. Take that with you. Always, right? Always, when we're at the table, this is why we say this is the best meal you'll ever have, right? There is no other. You could take this meal and go fast for a week and be just fine. Do you know that? You think I'm being sarcastic. I'm not. There are many of us, but we are one. 17's telling us that. We have many different feelings, many different ways of doing things, many different preferences, as Kyle was pointing out, even as he was taking us through the meal. Many different backgrounds, many different opinions, don't we? Now some of this, as we see in Corinthians, as we'll see here, can cause us to not be united, but, but it's, this is assumed. We all come from with many different opinions, many different political even and social angles that we take. Different jobs, different finances, different levels of education, different races, different cultures. Right? There are many in here, as we will see, that have different spiritual gifts. Some of you are an ear. Some of you are a toe or an eye or a hand. We'll get into that. We are many. The point. We are many, but we are one. The stress is on unity and the common bond we have with him and one another. His blood, his body, seals our partnership. That's what the Greek word, if you look there at 16, for sharing is in reference to koinonia, to have in common, participate, fellowship. When we come in here with the right attitude and the right heart, Take the meal in the right way. We are engaging in spiritual fellowship. Do you know that? And that is why we ask people who have not been baptized into the fellowship to abstain from participating in the meal. Right? Even those people who are of the same household. Right? The Bible is clear that this meal is for people who have become partners with Jesus. And to have someone at the table who has not done that, negates the power of the meal's proclamation and takes away from the intended spiritual experience that the rest of us are to have with Christ and with one another as we take it. What I'm saying there is, is it to have someone to come into the meal, to allow others at the table who have not uh, surrendered their heart and life to Christ, it, it falsifies what we are attempting to proclaim at the meal. And what is that well it's what we've been saying that each of us at the table when we eat the bread and drink the cup we are partakers with christ one unified that's a powerful thing to come in here and proclaim the sign of the table of the lord's supper points to a reality and when we are gathered together in his name you see, we are rightly engaged in rehearsing that reality. His shed blood, His death, that He became sin for us, that He took our penalty and redeemed us. As We are spiritually enriched by this as we meditate and celebrate these truths together. And the Holy Spirit uses... I pray we will see all... I know there's a lot coming out right now, but, but the Holy Spirit uses the power and presence, our presence in His presence here, the power and presence of this meal... And what it proclaims, the Holy Spirit, I believe, uses it to unite us to Christ and to one another. That is what is to be happening. That's why it's significant when we get to chapter 11 that we consider that we don't have uh, things going on against one another. And we're fighting one another. Because when we come around the table, we're receiving right this meal as one who has been forgiven. Not as an unmerciful servant. Right? And so we are quick to forgive, quick to move towards each other, not away. Verse 18, consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? So the unity that Christians have around the sacrifice of Christ is seen and experienced, that is seen and experienced in our spiritual participation as we take the Lord's Supper. Verse 18 here is highlighting how Israel participated in the sacrifice of the altar, by eating what was sacrificed on the altar. Right, so even just in that, they're participating in the sacrifice. And the point here in this context is that when you receive food, what he's telling the Corinthian church, is that when you receive food from an altar in a ceremony of worship, you're functioning as participants, and they would have understood this, right, because of the Old Testament sacrificial system, but when you receive food from an altar in a ceremony of worship, you were functioning as a participant in whatever that altar stands for. Okay? So verse 19:20, we are told what Paul is getting as he says raising a bunch of questions here, follow as I read. What am I saying then? That food sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But I do say that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. So here's what's happening. They're participating in banquets. They're in Corinth in banquets and and feasts that are held in pagan temples. right? Social and political gatherings at pagan temples was common. It was a common part of, of Corinthian life. And he's warning and making the point that you can't sit and participate at the Lord's table and then go and sit at an idol's table and eat the devil's food. He's not backing off, as he states there, he's not backing off of the fact that idols are worthless and that food sacrificed to those worthless idols. He's not backing off the point that 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 doesn't hold any sway. He's, He's totally there with that. It's all useless and pointless exercise. For these so-called gods can do nothing. But, but what he's saying then, he goes, but that doesn't mean these feasts that you're going to are some neutral social exercise. He's saying something is happening, and he tells us what that is in verse 20. Look there. That behind these meaningless idols are demons. Right? That's what he's getting at, verse 20. So to go to these public feasts in these pagan temples and eat the meat that they have sacrificed on the altar, you are being participant with demons. Right? By sharing food from the altar in this setting, they're establishing fellowship with all that the altar represents. Like we do at the Lord's table. Right, That's why it's important. Of who comes, who's gathering there at the table. Have they confessed these things? Because that's what you're proclaiming when you eat. Right? What are we doing when we eat? We're we're entering into fellowship with Christ and one another. We're, We're proclaiming that fellowship. Well, he's saying, likewise. Right? When you eat at the devil's table, okay? You're entering into fellowship with the devil. And Paul says very clearly, verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. One expositor I read says the devil's demons makes use of men's readiness to worship idols. Again, there's no neutrality in idolatry. You can't, church, we can't participate with Christ, come eat at his table as we have done here this morning, and also take place in the worship practices of our culture. And so it'd be good for us and wise for us to do over the next several weeks some personal reflection. What are the ways that we are tempted What are the ways right now that you already know? You don't even got to have it spelled out for you. You already know that you are taking place in the worship practices of your culture. There are all types of wants and desires that we have, some good, some bad, but all can become idols, objects, teachings, political ideologies, persons, a wife, a husband, spouse, children, sinful behaviors, excessive TV, drinking, gaming, Facebooking, Phone looking. Phone looking, what's that? It's looking at your phone all the time, excessively. It's an addiction, all right? I realized it here recently. I'm not even kidding. It's, it's ridiculous. What is? I need to examine that. Why am I scrolling? Why am I looking? What am I doing? Am I trying to escape something? What is entertaining my thoughts? Right, these are questions that I'm talking about, right? Right? These behaviors could be reflective of a discontented heart chasing after something like ease or comfort. And a person can become more loyal, right, to the pursuit or attainment and commitment to uh, these other things and less loyal to God. And when that happens, folks, that's idolatry. So I just want us to take moment this morning to really be reflective to ask the Holy Spirit to, to help you see right reveal it to me Lord that I might see these areas in my heart and life that, that I'm cultivating a love for some idol. When we say there's no neutrality in idolatry what we idolatry what we mean is our hearts, are always worshiping God or something else you've heard us say that many times up here before you're always worshiping right you do not enter into this world in neutrality right you are born with an active heart a heart that is running after something we are all born as worshipers are we not and so the question remains what are you worshiping what are you lifting up in your life and prioritizing as a as a need and I must have and that is not God, then it is something else. And I thought of it this way, too, because Christians, it gets a little bit harder for us to be exposed sometimes, doesn't it? How about when I conflate a teaching? So conflate. This is a little bit differently. I'm not saying, I don't want to set God down. What kind of Christian would do that? Right? No, I just want to bring God along with me. So I raise the question, what I what what do you or I conflate? A teaching? A person? A thing? As an integral, necessary part of my faith in Jesus? That's idolatry. Right? To 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 commingle, to bring it in as part of. So let me let me back up here. Let me let me give an example. Uh, of a statement. To love my wife is to love Jesus. This may be true. In fact, there is a way in which it is true. To rightly love your spouse is to love God, right? Because God calls us to love our spouse. And and we should not put things in conflict. These things should not be put in conflict with one another. But we must not conflate. That is, we must not combine or commingle our love and commitment to lesser things with our love and commitment to God. Let me say that again. We must not conflate. That is, we must not combine or commingle our love and commitment to lesser things with our love and commitment to God. While we are free in Christ, amen. Right? We're free. In fact, God desires us to enjoy the blessings of that freedom and enjoy the blessing that he he provides us, doesn't he? But we must be careful not to cultivate a heart that begins to prioritize blessings over God. Right? It is to be my commitment. It is to be our commitment to God and the law of Christ that directs and drives all our other loves in our life. Right? Right? Not my love for other things, driving and directing my commitment to God. You see the difference? My commitment to the law of Christ tells me that my primary concerns are not for this world, but for him and his purposes. To use me and to use us to promote his gospel, to establish his kingdom. Not build for me a bunch of idols to take along my journey. I saw this at least in part, when I was reading years and years ago, Sacred Marriage, I believe that's by Gary Thomas. In fact, I used to, when I first started doing premarital counseling and marriage counseling, I used to give this to folks to read. And one of the things that he says in there is marriage isn't uh, intended to make us happy, but to make us holy. And this concept helped me understand some things. It prevents my spouse from... But one thing, right, and why I bring it into to this context here, is that it prevents my spouse from becoming an idol in my life, right? If I understand God's purpose for her in my life, then my expectations in that relationship, right, change, don't they? Because they're more God-aligned than me-aligned. And so uh, I'm not using her to feel more whole and complete. Whenever I think of that, I always think, of, "Is it? was it Jerry Maguire? Is it, is it, right? it says, you complete me. You know I'm talking. Some of you know that. All right. Never. Remember, whenever I reference a movie, don't go watch it. That is not. (laughs) I'm not putting my stamp on it. All right. Don't see that movie. There you go. I love. I desire. I have an intimacy with my wife that is not known experience in any other human relationship I have. And again, we're just still on this example. She makes my day brighter, to go back to the beginning, my life more fruitful. God uses her to bring rich blessings, but they can never become the source of my satisfaction. They can never become the source of why my cup overflows. So for me, I gave the example of my spouse. For you, it might be something else. Whenever that blessing becomes right, the, the source of why your cup overflows, then, folks, your cup isn't overflowing for the right reasons, Right? Our cup ought to overflow because of the joy of our salvation, not because of the joy of the blessing. And He is not a means to that, right? I'm running after Him because it's in Him that I find the satisfaction that my heart and soul are really after. When a person, a thing, an idea, a a desire, a career, a position becomes part of what I need to be able to to thrive uh, with Jesus then a God has been constructed in my heart. Let me say it again. When a person, a thing, an idea, or a desire, or a career, or a position becomes part of what I need to be able to to thrive for Jesus, then a God has been constructed in my heart. You say, we know we have elevated something above God when something else besides God begins to dictate and control our emotions, our feelings, our behaviors, our joy. Christians, don't use your freedoms that you have to take the blessings of God and build idols. Like Romans 1.25 says, they were worshiping and serving what had been created instead of the creator. And when we do though, if we don't hear this text, there's a warning here. We're told why it's dangerous. We've been told why it's inconsistent. Now we're being told why it's dangerous. Verse 22 tells us we're provoking the Lord to jealousy. We serve a jealous God and he does not accept it, quite simply. When we attempt to align ourselves with him and something else. When we act as if we can eat at his table and then turn around, as we said earlier, and eat the devil's food. Our alliance, our allegiance, must be to him and him alone. His jealousy does not show a weakness, but his right. Like a man provoked to jealousy when his life leaves him for another man. It would be right that he would be jealous of that. Even more so, we owe God our lives, our hearts, and undivided hearts, he calls for, doesn't he? So we have to always have, I believe, our eyes on this. This is a warning that he will not compete. Right? But will discipline and destroy like he did in response to Israel's idolatry. And that is a theme in verse in chapter 10 and 11 here in Corinthians. The discipline in response. If we don't keep our eye on these things. This is what... Paul is saying, God is jealous, and rightfully so. You don't want to provoke his jealousy. And then we are told why by being asked this question. Look at it. Are you stronger than he? Right? Why don't you want to provoke his jealousy? Like, what's the big deal? And Paul raises the question, are we stronger than he? And the answer is obvious, right? I I think no. But we put ourselves in opposition to him. If we do that, what this is saying, like by the question, right? When we put ourselves in opposition to him, because everybody knows the answer, right? No, you're not stronger. So you put yourselves in opposition to God, and you can't survive that. In idolatry, we're lifting up something over God as if to confront him. As it it, again, like we said, like we're thumbing our noses at him. When when idolatry, we lift up something over God, and we're saying this is better, right? Like the calf that they put constructed and put together there, Aaron and the Israelites there when Moses was up on the mountain, right? We're we're putting up that idol as to confront God and say this will work for us because you're not working, and it's communicating he's not enough. He's not strong, he's not able. That is why the question is raised. Are you stronger than he is? Do you think you can survive a confrontation that your idolatry is leading you to? And the answer is no, right? The answer is no, we can't survive that until so we confess. So what is the response? What's the response to that right now this morning? Even as we just wrap up, it's very simple, isn't it? We've said it a little bit along the way, but the response to this is is to say, no, no, I, I want to examine, Lord, right? Amen, this morning. I want to look and I want to get real detailed and real exposed before God this morning. Why? What on earth, if anybody might be wondering, why on earth would I want to get real exposed on this point before God, right? Because he sees it, right? And he has available to us a cross, Right, where he died for us in order to give us forgiveness, and so I want to get real exposed because I can come to the cross and receive what the grace that I need, amen. And so, yeah, that's the response here is to be able to say, Lord, help me as I really examine my life and I look at those things in my life where I'm cultivating. Idols in my heart where I'm where I'm elevating these things above him. Where I'm prioritizing these things above him, where I've where I've felt in areas of my life where he's just not quite cutting it. And so I've got to bring this other substance in, or I've got to bring this other relationship in, or I've got to do that, you know, whatever it is for you. And what's the response? To confess, man, I don't, I don't want to. I can't win in a confrontation to God, and I don't want to. I want to go to the cross, right? And so I admit, I turn, and I ask for forgiveness, and and I run. You got, you got to do two things, though, right? You can't just put off, right? You can't just stop it, right? You've got to flee from idolatry and run to Jesus. As it says even over in Hebrews chapter 12. And this call to endurance in our faith. Before I go there though, I'm looking at Philippians 3, 18 through 19. And I'm looking at it just as a way to challenge us before I close once more to really think of our lives. Think of what we're grabbing hold of the sin in our lives that we're grabbing hold of that is not of God right of course it wouldn't be and that we're elevating above him or well, we're not looking and leaning on his leadership what inordinate desires or lustful desires are really shaping your life and dictating your life Will you think about that this week. Paul says there in verse 18 and 19 of Philippians 3, it says, For I have often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ, and their end is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is their shame, and they are focused on earthly things. And some of you are in here, right, where you've got yourself that far down the road in idolatry that, that, that you're showing off, and, and maybe not in here, but in certain circles when you're not in here, that you are showing off and celebrating things that you should be ashamed of. Your glory is your shame. And, and then there's some of us in here that, that we've just been way focused on earthly things, and, and that is shaping us, and that is increasing in our lives And we've got to stop and turn back to God and say, man, I've been, I've been, my mind has been consumed with building the kingdom here and not building his kingdom. And I'm raising up idols as a result of that consumed, even if it's like not trying to buy the newest, fanciest car, but just consumed with finances, right? Or what have you anxious about whatever, like not acknowledging, man, God can, God is able And so I just want to encourage you with that this morning. To to not be, let us, let's not be enemies of the cross. Right? Let's not be people whose mind, desires, longings, and appetites are set on fleshly things. And I suspect that many of you had to do what I had to do before getting in here. And that is... Confess this very thing, that too much stuff, right? Whether in my mind, my desires, my longing, my appetite. I got too much set on fleshly things. And I'm an idolater when I do that. And I got to run. Will you run with me? Away and to the cross, will you? Let's do it, church. Let's do it. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your patience with us in these things. And the warnings, because we don't want to be. We just took your supper. And we believe it, what it represents in our lives and we don't want to be an enemy of that meal. So, God, thank you for your mercy and your invitation to, to confess and admit and to turn and run and run from these idols that, that will really be the end of us. They they don't do anything for us and they mislead us. And Lord, the path is destruction. Make us wise in you on these points so that we might feed on you, that we might as Hebrews 12 talks about, just set our eyes on you and not get entangled in the sins that tempt us but fix our eyes on you For once again, we know that you are the author and the perfecter of our faith. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for grace that you shed on us. God, I pray that there wouldn't be a person in here this morning that doesn't leave without turning themselves into You, without transferring their allegiance from whatever it is in this world or in this life that they are worshiping and transferring their allegiance onto You. God, I pray and ask that by the power of Your Spirit that You will accomplish that in each of us today. You are the only one worthy of our allegiance. And so God, may we give it to You this morning. We transfer that to you this morning and recommit and and just plant ourselves, put our stake in the ground right there with you. God, eyes fixed on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. And you will take care of us and you will enable us and give us the strength we need to overcome these sins that tempt to destroy us. Thank you for this power and this promise.